Good evening. I'm Russ Germain, and this is Ideas. Individuals are like quantum states. The individuals can change very rapidly, but that change gets averaged out over the society into certain seemingly predictable directions, but not always predictable because sometimes an individual change or mutation can alter a social context in ways that could never have been anticipated. That, to me, is the power of the individual. There's always room for individual creativity. We always have the ability to choose which forces we are going to align with and how creative that alignment is going to be. Welcome to the fifth and final program in our series, Between Two Ages. Over the course of this series, we have examined various ways in which our fundamental cultural assumptions are breaking down under the pressure of rapidly changing circumstances. Tonight, we will look at four communities in which people are trying to live in ways that actually address these new circumstances. These are the Lindisfarne Association, which describes itself as a contemplative community of scholars. The Farm, a communal village in Summertown, Tennessee. The Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action in the state of Washington. And the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, which has dedicated itself to the development of an ecological science of design. Each of these communities is different, but they all, in some sense, represent the seeds of the 1960s grown to maturity. And they are all an attempt to take the first step beyond the impasse at which our technological civilization now finds itself. The series is prepared and presented by David Cayley. William Irwin Thompson has written that we are the climactic generation of human cultural evolution. This statement might at first seem grandiose, a product of the same apocalyptic delusion which sent people thronging to the hilltops of medieval Europe at the end of the first millennium. But the evidence for Thompson's statement grows more and more compelling, and the evidence at the end of the second millennium is physical rather than theological. Whether the present world order ends in a slow death by ecological attrition or in the sudden immolation of a nuclear firestorm, it is clear that it cannot be sustained indefinitely. We can put the problem out of our minds, but we cannot make it go away. And ultimately, we can only solve it by making what amounts to a quantum leap in consciousness, a shift not only in what we think, but how we think. Where there is no vision, says the book of Proverbs, the people will perish. Culture is founded on a vision of order. A new culture demands a new vision. Such a vision cannot provide us with a detailed map of the new territory, but it can provide us with a new attitude, a new way of thinking about and experiencing the world. One of the people who is trying to think and be in this new way is David Spangler, 
who in the early 1970s brought out a prophetic book entitled Revelation, The Birth of a New Age. At that time, he was involved in the Findhorn community in Scotland. He now writes and lectures in the United States and makes up part of a loosely affiliated group called the Lorian Associates. He suggests that there are five perceptible shifts in vision which characterize the emergence of a new age. The first of these is a greater sensitivity to wholeness. David Spangler. Wholeness, I believe, is a word we use to try to get to a point where we can begin to interpret, not just see, but interpret the connected and interrelated nature of the universe. That's one shift. The second shift is to, again, be able to see and experience the subjectivity of the universe, or what I would call the aliveness of the universe, the fact that everything has a creative innerness to it. And along with this notion of the creative innerness of all things is the idea that everything has a personhood. And it may not be personhood as we would define it for yourself and myself, but it is still, we are still dealing with a subjective reality that is worthy of love and respect and a form of communion. So that's the second shift. The third shift is the realization that we live in a process universe, that evolution is not something that happens to us, and creation is not something that once happened millions or billions of years ago, but evolution is something that we forge as we go along. We are co-creating it as we go along. That, I feel, is a shift. It's a shift in how we view time and how we view the consequences of our actions and our thoughts, just how we view the power that is resident within us. The fourth shift is the development, in a more specific way, of a planetary consciousness, by which I mean two things, an ability to perceive, to think, and to interpret the experiences of life with an underlying implicit awareness that we are one species, and secondly, that we are part of a living planet, that the planet itself is a living being. And if I begin to accept that I am part of the development of a living organism much greater than myself, my whole planet, then I ask myself the question, what is my role in relationship to that organism? And if I begin following through the implications of that question, it begins to redefine for me the nature of, of human existence on this world, which leads to the fifth shift, which is the, the concrete application of skill, of knowledge, of ability, of human will and effort to develop a culture that is planetary in its nature, not just international, but aligned with the realization that we are part of a living being, a living world, so that our culture, or rather the many cultures of our world, support that, they nourish that, they work in harmony with the intentionality of that larger wholeness, rather than continuing in a state of fragmentation. One of the images that the British scientist James Lovelock presents in his book Gaia 
is that humanity may be the evolving nervous system of the planet. And if this is so, if, if my nervous system and your nervous system behaved in our bodies the way humanity behaves in the Earth's body, we would most likely be terminally ill. At the very least, we would be committed in some institution for, for our own safety and that of others. As a nervous system of a planet, we have a long way to go to achieve the integration that that would require. But if that image is correct, then just as I would take steps as a person to try to bring my own body into alignment with my intentionality, so the earth as a consciousness may be taking steps to bring its nervous system, which is humanity in part, into alignment with its intentionalities. And part of the process of both historical development and this process of transformation that grips the world at the moment may be seen as the result of that planetary intentionality. So I have these five images. There's the development of the ability to perceive and interpret wholeness, the ability to perceive and understand the subjective aliveness of the universe, the ability to participate with skill and knowledge in the processes of the universe, the development of planetary consciousness, and the development of planetary culture. With David Spangler's five shifts in mind, let us now look at some of the communities in which this new vision is being embodied. First, the Lindisfarne Association, of which David Spangler himself is a fellow. Cultural historian William Irwin Thompson is the founder of the Lindisfarne Association. He relates how it came into being. Well, it's named after a Celtic monastery uh, that was founded in the 7th century that was a, uh, shall we say, an agency of transition from one world system to another, namely from the disintegrating uh, Greco-Roman world that was in the period of Dark Ages, and the emergence of a new culture, which was modern Western Europe. And so at that transitional period, a small group of scholars and monks were able, in a sense, to revision culture, take the old Greco-Roman civilization and miniaturize it into a curriculum, create monastic schools, and use these as sort of centers of learning and agents of cultural transformation and recreation to help, in a sense, be the midwives to a whole new emerging world system. So they were the agents for the emergence of the Western civilization. And uh, that kind of um, relationship facing in both directions, both toward a kind of imaginative recreation of the past and a kind of visionary participation in the fostering of a new civilization seemed to me a metaphor for what should be the role of scholarship and humanities in contemporary society. But because at MIT the role of the, the humanist was to be an apologist for the technocratic system, uh, I felt the humanities were not really serving their, their, their true purpose. And so I, uh, I quit MIT and came up here to Toronto and uh, taught at York for about five years but eventually felt that, that York and other Canadian universities were trying, in a sense, to follow the American model of being very much the, the consulting arm of the technological state. So I felt it was time to uh, explore other, other roles for the scholar than just being a tenured full professor in, in, a, uh, in the university. So I quit and um, called Lindisfarne uh, the Lindisfarne Association, meaning that it was associated with the spirit of the original Lindisfarne, 
and it was associated with the spirit of Celtic Christianity, which was a little more decentralized, shamanistic, a little more mystical than the Orthodox uh, Roman Catholic uh, Church. And so there emerged over the years a group of people who, were, who have become Lindisfarne Fellows, and these people have come and taught and participated in the curriculum at Lindisfarne, and, and each one is, in a sense, a sort of center for a, vi a new vision of culture, new alternatives. So they, there's a, quite a disparate group from uh, the economist Hazel Henderson to the uh, American poet Gary Snyder. Uh, before they died, E.F. Schumacher and Gregory Bateson were both Lindisfarne fellows, the ecologist John Todd. These individuals were all working on the bits and pieces of a new culture. Some were working on appropriate technology, some were working on theories of knowledge, some were working on science and biology, some were into poetry. Uh, and architecture. And so these individuals have come together and formed a kind of, what shall we say, a loose, a loose association. It's not a, a movement with a leader because they're all self-leading kind of people. And what happens is it's like before you have a kind of individual star in the firmament, but when they come together then you can see a larger pattern like a constellation. And what the constellation is, is a new world order, a new world system, a new, a new world culture. So it was that kind of new culture that I was seeking to foster and encourage and help along by bringing these individuals together. Because Thompson sees the revisioning of culture as being in part an imaginative recreation of the past, he believes that scholarship has a strong role to play in this project. But scholarship set in the context of a contemplative community. It is a vision of a middle way between what Thompson sees as the hyper-intellectualism of the universities and the anti-intellectualism of the counterculture. One of my problems uh, throughout the 70s was uh, getting constantly uh, thrown into this association with things that I, that I found repellent or, or vulgar or cheap, and it, it just seemed to me that the, what the people wanted was to have sort of McDonald's of mysticism, and they wanted to have just sort of little fast food, you know, consciousness-changing stands on every corner, and I just felt I didn't want to have any part of that, and wanted something that was much more uh, a blend between intuition and, and spiritual levels of understanding, but considerable amounts of, of, of intellectual rigor and, and scholarship. So when, when I started Lindisfarne, there was a great divorce. You know, you had either the kind of neurotic inter intellectuality of Harvard and MIT and the kind of mindless, blissed-out, idiotic spirituality of the kind of uh, pop guru movement. And there was, no, uh, there was no bridge or relationship between the two. So to create something like Lindisfarne, I had to make it too intellectual for the, for the counterculture and too spiritual for Harvard and MIT. So I've always been in that middle region where I get, you know, get the flack from, um, from uh, both sides of things. Throughout his writings, William Irwin Thompson has characterized the movements of history by the interplay of opposites. He sees our present choices as broadly polarized between a move to an even more rigidly centralized culture of domination, something like what Ivan Illich calls techno-fascism, or on the other hand, decentralization of power and diversity of cultural expression. For Thompson, this is an archetypal polarity, which can be set up in a number of ways. Here, he characterizes a decentralist perspective by the terms Taoist and Pythagorean, and a centralist perspective by the terms Confucian and Archimedean. The Archimedean and the Confucian are both centralized, Mandarin, elitist, 
and authoritarian and materialistic, involved with the technological manipulation and control and systems of domination. So it would be, in our culture, the genetic engineering and the shift from uh, natural selection to artificial selection through laboratory control. It would be sociobiology and tirage to determine what was in the, uh, for the maximum optimization of the gene pool, what was inherently in the best interests of, uh, of the human species as seen by a cadre of biologists of the E.O. Wilson kind of uh, stripe. And all of those, I think, are inherently suspicious of ambiguity, suspicious of spontaneity, suspicious of innovation, sus suspicious of vitality, and are looking to control and superimpose system on life. And I'm much more interested in those forms that are involved with spontaneity, imagination, risk-taking, vitality, and uh, at the way of expressing that decentralization where the whole uh, ecosystem is alive with different adaptations. There isn't monoculture with just, you know, the whole breadbasket of the United States covered with, you know, corn and, and wheat, that there's a much more supple and alive and moving kind of complexity. So for me, Taoism or Pythagoreanism are, are views of the inherent dance of the Tao or the dance of pattern or the, the dance of number, not seen as a form of computer program to control things, but just seen that the, the way the nerves fire and the, and the stars pulse is all related to a kind of music of the spheres. And so it's a much more mystical and alive kind of way. And in this kind of system, there's no central pope who decides you know, what the true true religion is. Uh, this is also the case in Celtic Christianity. The Pope was not part of Celtic Christianity, and they, some of the monks used to write to him and say, you know, why is the Bishop of Rome thinking he's the Bishop of the world? And so there is no Pope for the new culture as I see it. In keeping with this vision of decentralization, Lindisfarne is now designing a permanent home in Colorado, along the lines of what Thompson calls the meta-industrial village. We take the past in terms of sacred architecture and, and sacred geometry, and we blend it together with appropriate technology, and then blend that together as well with ecology to try and create buildings that are symbiotic with nature and that don't consume energy but produce energy, that these buildings produce food as well as producing the energy for the people that are in them, and that rather than being built on top of nature, like the Toronto Dominion Bank or the World Trade Center, they're built into nature, and that they're, they're a process uh, in a, in a co-evolutionary kind of way. So we're trying to go back to the idea of the village and say, look, we don't want to just put a solar collector on an individual family home in a tract house, because the tract house is basically a collectivization. It's a grid laid, dropped down by a developer, almost dropped down by helicopter. We're trying to, in a sense, look at a larger, more viable form of human settlement, the village. But we don't want to go back to the idiocy of rural life, and we don't want to go back to the pre-industrial village. We want to accept the aspects of electronics and the new cybernetic consciousness and bring them together in a meta-industrial village. So we're bringing together various individuals who are Lindisfarne fellows like Keith Critchlow in sacred architecture, John Todd and Wes Jackson in ecology, 
and Sim van der Rijn and Amory Lovins in appropriate technology. And all of them are working as consultants and designers and creators for this kind of village project of designing what will be a contemplative community of scholars in, in, in the mountains in Colorado. So it's an attempt to show people in a concrete kind of way that this is the future and it works, you know, and it's, uh, it's a better way of life than, than other possibilities. And for the period of instability and economic uh, chaos and nation-state chaos that we're moving into, that this little kind of meta-industrial village uh, with its own contemplative way of life can be a beacon precisely in the same way the monastery was in the period of Dark Ages. So whereas Lindisfarne in New York was simply talking about the ideas in the 70s and trying to bring the connections together, now Lindisfarne in Colorado is actually moving to the level of embodiment. mid-1960s in San Francisco, Stephen Gaskin became the leader and teacher of a group of people whose experiences with psychedelic drugs were gradually pointing them towards a radical change in their way of life. When it became clear that their new vision could only find permanent embodiment in an independent community with its own means of livelihood, they acquired a thousand acres of land in Summertown, Tennessee, and forthrightly named their new home The Farm. Today, the farm is a self-sufficient community of over 1,500 people, organized as a sort of collective village. Stephen Gaskin. We feel like that the kind of visions that came down to us over the last 15 years or so indicated a, a, uh, an attempt to get closer to nature and to reality and, and a, uh, a stepping away from uh, uh, trying to uh, establish uh, individual uh, riches for uh, security rather than uh, uh, working with other folks. It's a tribal vision. The government tries to put, I think, out on the people the idea that each individual one person has to face the government alone. And we think that's wrong. And we think that an individual person is protected from the government by their family and by their tribe. And that that's what our family and our tribe does for us, is it stands between us and the government, and it makes us so that we also are an entity that has to be dealt with, even though we can live a humble lifestyle within that. And so I guess we're, we're a citadel of some kind, you know, a monastery. I used to say monastery, but I just read St. Benedict's rules of his monastery the other day, and they were so strict compared to how we live that, that, they, that they about scared me, you know, and I, I almost made me hesitate to use that word lest somebody else should pick up some strict-looking monastery rules like that and assume, because basically we're a bunch of hippies, and the discipline that we have assumed is an anarchic discipline we've assumed on ourselves of our own best will and free will and free judgment so that we can live the freest life we can live. We feel that, that, that we are an, a, a local outcropping and an expression of something that's happening spontaneously in every country in the world. And wherever I travel, there's a bunch of people who are amazingly uh, easy to communicate with, uh, other folks who are uh, long hairs, other folks who are into uh, uh, diet, uh, uh, learning about uh, health, uh, other folks who have uh, opinions about the medical establishment, uh, other folks who uh, 
are experimenting with living together collectively in, in smaller or larger units. People want us to uh, try to uh, help them start farms in their own countries and people from, from all over the world come and visit the farm about that and we, and we visit other communities the same way. This is something that's really all over the world and that if we be really good and kind to each other so that we can be together in fairly large groups, then we can have some strength and we can maybe do something about the planet. So it's, it's, it's really the uh, difference between the uh, Darwinian and the Kropotkin ideal, you know. Uh, survival of the fittest does not mean survival of the thangiest. For the people at the farm, building a community did not mean withdrawing from the world. Rather, it provided a base from which to continue to try and change the world. So people from the farm have played an active part in the anti-nuclear movement. The farm midwives have made a major contribution to the renaissance of midwifery in North America, both through an influential book called Spiritual Midwifery and by opening their gates to whomever wanted to come there to have their baby. The farm has also created an organization called Plenty, which has offered small-scale practical assistance in certain third world countries like Guatemala, Haiti, and Lesotho. The basis for this, Stephen Gaskin says, is that the farm itself is like a little third world country and has had to solve on its own the basic problems of diet, sanitation, and shelter, which are often paramount in poorer countries. Because the farm represents a collective decision to lead a modest, resource-efficient style of life that could be sustained anywhere and not just in a rich country, Plenty is able to operate on a basis of solidarity with other peoples and thus to avoid the paternalism which so often characterizes international aid. Stephen Gaskin describes how the farm came to have this sort of global reach. There was only one building on this property when we came onto it and uh, a few old dirt logging roads. And we were pretty busy for a few years just establishing enough of a beachhead to, to survive. But then we realized that as we had that beachhead beginning to be visible, that we didn't want to become a quietist community and, and to retreat from the world, but that we cared what was going on in the world and that we had to reach out through the structure we had built somehow to, to maintain that connection with the world. And, once you have a, you know, once you've given yourself a good idea like that, all you have to do is wait for the next opportunity for something to happen. And uh, what happened was a combination of uh, the Guatemalan earthquake and uh, that some of our people on the farm uh, were able to just uh, ask, you know, get get away to get down to Guatemala, and they flew down and to take a look at the situation, and uh, we became of help. We immediately sent down some uh, carpenters and carpenter tools in a, in, a, in a third world country like Guatemala are about as rare as surgeon, surgeon's instruments. You know, just plain carpenter's tools, your level and your, your plane and, and, and like that. And uh, we were able to help out with housing immediately after the earthquake. We were able to help out with medical. But the thing that was really tearing us up was that they kept bringing us these dying babies. And they were just, they'd bring us babies that were so far gone there was no way to get them back. Once in a while there'd be ones that was in good enough shape we could get them back. And we have kids running around now that we brought back from death's door. But it, it, it was too hard on our heart to uh, all the time be having these dying kids brought to us. We wanted to get farther upstream. We wanted to get back up to why were they hungry? How come they weren't eating? And try to deal with it at that level before they got so hungry that they were damaged from it. So then we began trying to bring our soy technology into Guatemala. And we have been 
developing the soybean for our own use. We're vegetarians, and, and uh, one of the pieces of uh, serendipity that occurred was just about the time we came to land on this land, a, a, a famous uh, a nutritionist doctor from the World Health Organization let out the word that soybeans were a perfect protein and contained all of the amino acids necessary for mankind. So we were had that piece of information going in and we bet it heavy on the soybean and it's paid off for us in many ways and now we have soybean ice cream and soybean yogurt and soybean cheese and just a really variety of interesting and tasty and healthful uh, high protein soybean dishes and we're introducing that technology into Guatemala and we're getting it to try to feed those kids when they're still young and feed their mothers while they're still pregnant, you know, and get back up the stream a little bit instead of just being handed a dying baby that's too sick to get well. essay on the atomic bomb written in the 1940s, Teilhard de Chardin observed that the more nations now armed in order to become independent, the more they would in fact become interdependent. What he was identifying was the hair-trigger dialectic between planetization and thermonuclear war, which is the distinguishing feature of our age. Once the doomsday machine has been built, we have faced ourselves sooner or later with an inexorable choice. Either we will use it, or we will dismantle it. And dismantling it is probably as good a definition of planetization as we can give at this stage. The problem of nuclear weapons is the focus for the activities of another community, the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action. The name derives from the technical term for the center of a nuclear explosion. This community is encamped at the edge of what easily could become Ground Zero, the Trident nuclear submarine base on Puget Sound in the state of Washington near the Canadian border. And since 1975, they have carried on a nonviolent campaign against Trident, which is a first-strike nuclear weapons system of almost unimaginable destructive power. Each submarine carries over 400 precisely targeted warheads each one with five times the explosive power of the original Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Shelley Douglas is a member of the Ground Zero community. She describes how she became aware of Trident. We had a friend named Bob Aldrich who had worked with us in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And we didn't realize it, but Bob worked for Lockheed in California, Lockheed Aerospace. He had worked there for 16 years, and he was design chairman of a team that was designing nuclear missiles. He was chairman of the team, as a matter of fact, that designed Trident. And as he built Trident, he began to ask himself the kinds of questions that you might infer from what I described as a first-strike system. He believed that the U.S. was committed to the policy of mutual assured destruction, which is abbreviated MAD, M-A-D. And if you are committed to that policy, you have no need for the kinds of missiles that he was designing. He realized that the only reason he had to design a missile that was precisely targeted and highly explosive in nuclear terms was in order to explode missile emplacements and command posts and military targets. And then he realized that, of course, you wouldn't want to do that 
If they had already fired the missiles from the other side, there would be no point in exploding an empty missile silo. So he began to realize that he was probably working on first strike weapons. And he did research into the other systems that go along with the Trident system, the crews and the MX and the satellite communications and anti-submarine warfare systems, and realized that we are indeed on our, on our way to having a counterforce system or a first strike system. When Bob realized that, he had a kind of a crisis of conscience, which, which spread to the rest of his family, which includes 10 children. And as a family, they went on retreat and decided that they would give up their middle-class lifestyle and that Bob should quit his job because they didn't want to live on the proceeds from designing uh, the beginning of a nuclear war. Uh, Bob came and visited us one summer and told us that he had quit his job, and we made the mistake of asking him why. And he told us about the Trident system, and then he told us that Trident was about to be home-ported about 100 miles from where we were then living. We were living in Vancouver, British Columbia. And the home port for Trident will be right off the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, which is extremely close. And he also told us that Trident will use Canadian waters to enter or exit from its home port, one or the other. So we became kind of concerned, and since it was in our backyard, we felt that it was our duty as citizens to try and do something about the home porting of Trident here. This led to the founding of what was first called the Pacific Life Community. It was based on the understanding that opposition to nuclear arms must be more than a political gesture which itself becomes warlike. It must be a lived consecration to a vision of peace. It developed, first of all, because we didn't believe that you can have simply a political solution to the problem of the arms race. We believe that the arms race is an outgrowth of the economic system and the philosophical system that we live under, and that in ending one weapon system, even if we were to be able to end the construction of Trident, if we did that without addressing any of the other issues, we would simply find ourselves building a much bigger and worse weapon system. So the first commitment that we made was to try and understand what it would mean to live a nonviolent life, uh, not to exploit other people and not to exploit nature to the point where uh, we would kill the earth, and also um, to explore at the same time how to act nonviolently in the political arena so that instead of creating factions and oppositions, we created a consensus that people did not want nuclear weapons any longer. Ground Zero has been in existence for the last three years of the campaign. The campaign began in 1975. And we bought Ground Zero originally because we felt it was violent to come from outside, from Seattle and Vancouver and Victoria, into an area that was undergoing great stress because of the influx of Navy personnel and weapons, and to tell them that what they were doing was wrong, and then to go home to an area that was unaffected by the construction of Trident. So some of us got together and bought a piece of land in Kitsap County, uh, 3.8 acres of land which borders on the Trident base itself. And on that land there's a small house and a couple of sheds, and we've built a geodesic dome there, and we're in the process of beginning an organic garden as well. What we've done there over the last three years has been, first of all, to establish a nonviolent presence in Kitsap County of people who are committed not only to opposing Trident and trying to live nonviolently, but who are committed to doing that in Kitsap County, which is one of the, the counties in the United States with the highest rate of military employment and involvement. It's a kind of a 
it's a kind of a place where if we could change it, it would be a revolution in small. Uh, ways that we've done that have been, first of all, to establish contact with the people who live and work in Kitsap County uh, by going out and talking to them in their homes and their churches and raising issues that we think need to be addressed by leafleting workers as they go into the Trident base. Every Thursday now for two and a half years, we've gone out at 6.30 and leafleted the workers with a statement about Trident or with a cartoon or a poem or something about the arms race. Right now, we've been leafleting about El Salvador. We've leafleted Valentines and Christmas cards, <laughs> all kinds of things, just to establish contact in a human way with people working on the base. The cutting edge of the campaign against Trident has been civil disobedience in the tradition of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. This has usually involved trespass on the base itself and has resulted in lengthening prison sentences for Ground Zero members. Shelley Douglas has herself been jailed and her husband, Jim, is now in the last six months of a one-year sentence. One of the things that we've done since the beginning of the campaign has been a direct action uh, presence at the base involving civil disobedience. That is the deliberate breaking of a law in order to go to court and present a case in court, and then the volun voluntarily showing up to serve the time in jail that we get for breaking the law. We've done that uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's an educational thing to do. It helps to raise the issue in a way that citizens' groups are not able to do without um, breaking the law or doing something else in a kind of a spectacular way. Secondly, it helps us get into the courts in order to raise issues of international law. Trident and the development of nuclear weapons violate American commitments to treaties, and because they do that, they violate the American Constitution. But there's no way for American citizens to sue our government in federal courts because you have to have the federal government's permission if you want to sue it. The only way you can bring the government to court is to have them arrest you. And then as your defense, you can argue that they were in fact violating a much more important law than the one you violated and that your violation of a lesser law was justified in order to prevent the greater harm. We've also done civil disobedience simply because it's a cutting edge for the campaign and it it's the kind of thing that needs to be done if transformation is going to occur in any way that's deeper than skin deep. Nuclear weapons are the most violent of all our technologies, but they are exceptional only by the extremity of their power. They exist at the end of a continuum, which also includes civil nuclear reactors and many other violent technologies, which disrupt both their physical and social environments. At the new Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, the object is to design technologies that are both nonviolent and restorative. This involves harmonizing the goal of minimal environmental disruption with the goal of greater social equality by providing tools which respect the environment and to which everyone potentially has access. This is what John Todd, the co-founder of New Alchemy, 
calls an ecological science of design. Its basic principles are the use of renewable energy and the substitution of biological information for expensive hardware. If it takes an electrical-powered machine driving a motor, which is operating a pump, which is circulating water, which is then being irradiated with some kind of ionizing radiation to purify water, we have a piece of hardware. If, however, that same water, let's say it's household waste, was passed through a pool in which various kinds of organisms, algae, higher plants, bacteria, protozoans, which have been collected from the various places on the face of the planet and put into that pond. And when the water passes through it, it is purified just as much, if not more, than the water that passed through all that machinery, which required a lot of capital and a lot of energy. In the second case, what we have done is taken information, which is in fact expressed in living things, put them together to create kind of a soup in a pond exposed to sunlight, and we purified our water. We have done something that requires very little capital and very little hardware. That means, then, that no matter how rich or poor you are, you have a way of having pure water. Hence, there's equity. Hence, information for good political as well as global or Gaia reasons uh, should be the one which replaces the hardware. And you can find examples like that wherever you look. Um, information could also be um, knowledge or elements of, elements of knowledge. For example, I tend to be one of those people who feel that a very earth-based society, if you will, would probably use a fair amount of electronics to help bridge themselves and the living world. In other words, I can see in the informational sense computers interacting between ourselves and say a complex ecosystem like a, uh, a forest or a pond and that that kind of interaction will help dictate the types of architecture and the types of agriculture that we do. Um, there's another information replacing hardware, although I realize in this case there's also hardware in the information in the form of the computer. But it's a minimal one compared, say, with some gigantic machine. So its use of materials is relatively small in comparison with the machines that we currently use to do things for ourselves. The cogency of John Todd's theory may make us wonder why it is not immediately taken up as a solution to pressing social problems. The answer lies in a distinction Todd himself has drawn between the structure of a given social system and the coefficients of that structure. He argues that we are happy to manipulate the coefficients of a system, but we are somehow paralyzed in the face of the need to fundamentally alter the structure. So we will much more willingly redesign the automobile then we will put the structure of our transportation system itself in question. John Todd says that he asked himself for a long time why this should be so. The partial answer, at least, came from Gregory Bateson, who said, it is possible 
that when one is dealing with fundamental structural issues, one is dealing with a kind of addiction. In other words, people are really blind to structure, but they're not blind to coefficients. And that may be why we have all these endless debates about how energy should be used, how farming should develop, etc., etc., is that there is kind of an addictive blindness, if you will, to looking at the structural forms around you. Let's take, for example, a skyscraper, uh, which is a building which, in order to be sustained, gets all of its life support elements from very distant and to the people inside that building, unrelated phenomena. Um, I think you see that everywhere. Now, a structural change, in this case, let's just take that one skyscraper, would be if that building was more like an organism. If it had intrinsic in its own materials and design, its ability to cool itself, its ability to heat itself, its ability to recycle internally its own waste, perhaps even provide a percentage of its food for its residents, you would see then architecture undergoing a structural change. To carry it one step further, let's take that same building, which is now probably used for a single activity, let's say commerce. If in that building, all of a sudden, we started to include education and governance and growing and possibly even manufacturing and living, we would then see another profound structural change where buildings became representations of the wide range of activities that humans do. So the same skyscraper has just gone through a series of structural changes. And that same kind of example could be used when one looks at almost anything we do. And I would say that the third example, where the worker and the child and the governor are somehow all interwoven, um, would tend to produce a more profound society. I don't know that, though. I just know that it would be a more adaptive society, probably, in the long run. The transmutation of the skyscraper in John Todd's example represents a change in how we think about the function of buildings. In his vision, they are conceived as ecologies in which balance and diversity yield flexibility and hardiness. Such a vision represents a reversal of the trend to fragmentation of functions, which cheap energy has made possible, if never entirely desirable. For David Spangler, functional criteria of this sort are fundamental to the idea of a new age. What is at issue, he says, is not our belief structure, but our congruency towards reality. Not what we think is right, in other words, but what works in the new context in which we will eventually have to learn to operate. There's a tendency on the part of human beings to cast a transformative threshold into apocalyptic terms, into ideological and religious terms, to make it a matter of belief, when actually it should be a matter of function. Because if I poison my land, I am going to arrive at certain limits to the productivity of that land. There's, there's just no way around that. That's just the way it is. And that's not a matter of ideology or belief or new age or old age. It just says that I will kill the soil. And when the soil is dead, that's it. The organic farming approach, to continue with that metaphor, 
takes into account that everything is alive and I have to work with that life. I can't work against it. I may work with it in ways that alter it, and if I do, if I manipulate it, I need to understand how it's going to manipulate me back because I'm, I am part of that whole system. Now, there's, there's nothing theological or mystical or ideological about that. That's just the way it is. It's just the way reality is constructed. The real dividing line between the old world and the new world, so to speak, is at that point of congruency towards reality. Though a lot of the New Age movement gets um, spoken about and described in terms of belief structures, uh, reincarnation, uh, UFOs, uh, higher levels of consciousness, and this and that, the real dividing line is, can I work with a universe that is connected, or do I work in a universe that I th in which I think I have independence from those connections and therefore cannot be held responsible for my actions? And I can work in both universes, but one of them is going to be more successful than the other. One, in one of them, I'm going to run into diminishing returns. The image that is fundamentally behind the New Age is that we have reached or are reaching the point of diminishing returns. And I, I see that part of the challenge we're dealing with, whether it's on either side of that arbitrary dividing line of New Age, Old Age, is the problem of the human need to be right and the human need to be validated and the human need to belong and to have an identity with something. So that when people say, I believe in the New Age, I am part of the Aquarian conspiracy, I uh, want to belong and, and derive my identity from these new images, the New Age is, is not a, a membership club. And when it's treated that way, it, it can stimulate conflict. When it's seen as simply growing up, becoming more mature in our awareness of how our world works, and more willing to work with it, then it takes it into a different context entirely. Yeah.
Tonight on Ideas, the final program in our series, Between Two Ages. Heard were David Spangler, William Irwin Thompson, Stephen Gaskin, Shelley Douglas, and John Todd. The series was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Producer, Bernie Looked. Technician, Lorne Tulk. A reading list for these programs is now available. If you'd like one, please write us. Our address is Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. I'm Russ Germain. Good night. Thank you.